And if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, you can find this uh, printed for you, as always, in the bulletin. Uh, We are nearing an end, actually, to this series in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be ending on Easter Sunday, which is not too many weeks off now. And today you're going to see it. This is really the last event that we're going to read about right before Jesus is betrayed and put on trial for his death. And in fact, the event is very surprising. You might not think this was the event that led to the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, but it was. It's told by all four gospel writers. And so let's read about it together, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said... Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. I think we've all been in the situation where we have overreacted to something that seemed small to everybody else. Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe you flew off the handle when everybody else thought you shouldn't. Maybe it happened to you recently. We don't know. Sometimes we do that and the thing really is small and we really have overreacted. Uh, maybe it's usually, I find when I do it, it's because I've been like frustrated by little things and it, I've been holding it in over time and then finally that one little thing happens and I shouldn't be mad at it, but it's like the straw that broke the camel's back and boom, you know, all my frustration comes out at once. But there are other times when actually other people may see it as a small thing, but to us, it is not a small thing and therefore we overreact in their eyes, but actually we're reacting very much in keeping with what we think the event is about. That second category is what's going on in this passage. There is an event that happens at a dinner party that to us may seem small, but there are two characters in the story that are overreacting to it. I mean, think about it. Look, look at verses 1 and 2 again. Uh, the tensions are high. The scribes and the chief priests have been looking for a reason to kill Jesus. They've been looking for a reason. They found it finally, and they're ready to do it, but they lack one thing. What do they lack? 
an opportunity. Well, this event becomes their opportunity because in verses 10 and 11, Judas, who is absolutely angry at the event that takes place, decides because of that event to fly off the handle and go and betray Jesus. But he's not the only one overreacting to the event. There's also Jesus. What does he say about what this woman did? She did a beautiful thing to me. And so look at it. It it seems like a small thing. Just a dinner party, just some perfume. Okay, great. And yet you have Jesus on the one hand saying, what a beautiful thing. Everywhere the gospel is told, we're going to talk about her from here on out for the rest of time. And then Judas is saying, I'm going to kill him. Do you think there's more to what this woman did than maybe it seems to us? If you got Jesus and Judas reacting, let's think about that this morning. And maybe a great window into that is just to simply think about this. To think about your life goals, okay? Uh, Everybody's got life goals. I don't know what yours are. In a sense, it doesn't matter right now. Just think about this one. Try this one on. What if your life goal was that at the end of your life, Jesus Christ would say, it has been beautiful to me. How about that? Try that one on. Uh, What if he were to say, she did a beautiful thing to me about you, or he did a beautiful thing to me. Wouldn't that be something? I mean, that would be greater than anything else. Well, how do you know that what you're doing is beautiful to Jesus? Take a look at your bulletin. There are three things in the story that we want to look at. First of all, we're going to see what Jesus finds beautiful, the offering of the woman. Then we're going to see why some people did not find it beautiful. And then lastly, we're going to look at the reasons why, the reasons that Jesus gives why he found it beautiful in opposition to them. All right. So first of all, let's look at what Jesus found beautiful. And you can see it all summarized neatly in verse 3. Just verse 3. While he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, broke it, and poured the whole thing out on his head. That was the act. Now, there's a lot told to us in just that one sentence, if you pay attention to it. First of all, it was two days before the Passover. We were told that in verse 1. The Passover was the highest holy day, the highest holiday of the Jews was kind of like our Christmas. Think about the dinners that you go to leading up to Christmas. Are they festive? Are you excited? Usually everybody's happy to be there. All the feels, you know, all the holiday stuff that's going on. This is the same way then. Everybody was excited about what was about to happen in two days. All their family was coming into town. And they were having a dinner party. They were reclining at the table, which tells you something, actually, because the Jews didn't normally recline at table. Uh, That was something that the um, Greeks and the Romans did almost all the time. The Jews only did it at special occasions. Most of the time, if they were just eating lunch, they sat like we do on a seat. But at special occasions, maybe they were imitating the Greeks and the Romans, they would lay down on their side as they ate, almost as if to say, we are here to stay. We're going to be enjoying this meal, and so here we are, laying out. This was a big deal. It was at the house of Simon the leper. Now, kids, I didn't say leopard. I said leper. What is a leper? 
Somebody who has a nasty, vicious, deadly skin disease, one that did not have a cure at the time. People were mortified of it because of that. And so what does that tell you about Simon? That he's hosting a dinner party and he's called the leper. He's a leper no more. I can tell you that. Uh, he obviously was a leper. He's not one now because had he still been a leper and sent out those dinner invitations, he would have received a lot of regrets because nobody would have wanted to be there. So this was somebody who had leprosy and now doesn't. He's a happy man. Uh, it's not too much speculation to guess. Maybe he's one of the ones Jesus healed. After all, there was no cure for leprosy. He had to get cured somehow. Maybe he was one of the ones whom Jesus touched and made clean. He's throwing a dinner party. John, in his gospel, tells us even this. Lazarus was seated at the same table. Lazarus. Yes, the one who just a week before had been dead for four days and he had even reached the point of stinking. And yet Jesus called him out of the grave and raised him from the dead, y'all. So you've got a former dead man, a former leper... And everybody and their brother and cousin is there getting ready for the holidays. What kind of dinner is this? They're reclining, enjoying it. This is happy time. In comes this woman. John names her. John says this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. She comes in with a thank offering for Jesus. A bottle of ointment. The bottle was made out of alabaster. The ointment inside was made out of pure nard. In our Song of Solomon reading, it also mentioned the fragrance of nard twice. That's a, that's a funny word, isn't it? Nard, right? Nard was a plant from India. Actually, you had to import it from India, and it was one used in the most expensive of perfumes. Mary had a bottle of perfume made from nard. It was worth 300 denarii, which means one year's wages. Did y'all hear that? One year's wages? Let's put it in today. This was a $45,000 bottle of perfume. Seriously. You say, well, why in the world would she have that? Was she super wealthy? Well, obviously she had some means, but there was a reason why she had it. Uh, back then they did not have life insurance policies. There was no such thing as life insurance. This was how they did life insurance. One of the things you had to do to bury a body is you had to anoint them with perfumes. And so people would often buy very expensive bottles of perfumes early on in their life and save them, like hide them, so that when a loved one died, they would have available all the funds they would need to bury their loved one with dignity and respect. It was very much like a life insurance policy. It was their life savings. And she took it and she broke it, indicating she didn't intend to use only part of it, but all of it. And she poured every last drop on Jesus' head as he's sitting there at the table. It rolls down his hair, onto his face, gets in his nose, rolls down on his chest and his robes, and reaches all the way down to his legs and his feet. John tells us it filled the house with the fragrance. Which parents, you know, have you ever had a kid spill a bottle of perfume or cologne at home? That's a smell. It's a smell that lingers. It's a smell that doesn't go away very easily. Um, pretty sure none of us have ever poured an entire bottle of perfume on our hair before. How long would that take to wash out? 
This is, a, this is something really unusual, right? I mean, the, the fragrance is strong. The act is extravagant. And Jesus says it's beautiful because of that. You see, Jesus understands something about the human heart, and, and it's something that we should understand. Expenses express values. Isn't that true about the human heart? Expenses express values. Have you ever sat down with your family budget and said, you know what, this year I want to spend less on eating out so that we can spend more on vacation because I want to take a better vacation. Less on eating out, more on vacation or something like that. Have you ever done that? What are you doing? You're making an evaluation based on expenses. You're saying, I don't value eating out as much as I want to value having a little bit better vacation. I'm going to decrease the expenditures here and increase them there because I value that more. Jesus saw this woman's act and and he understood it was a window into her heart. It showed him and everybody else how much she thought of Jesus, how valuable she thought he was to her and to everybody else. She poured it all out. Now, in our culture, I think we're very right and very good at identifying this fact that the heart matters more than anything else. We understand that. I think that's something that modern culture in particular has really emphasized. And it's actually true. What's in your heart matters more than anything else. The Bible affirms that. But here's where we get it wrong sometimes. We think that as long as your heart is good, your actions don't matter as much. The Bible says your actions reveal your heart. That's the difference, right? The Bible affirms the same thing modern culture does about the heart being important. Your heart is very important. What's in it? You get to guard it. You got to protect it. It's either good or bad, and that matters a lot. But here's what the Bible says. What you do, what you are willing to be spent on, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether whatever it is, what you're willing to spend on, is a window into what you love. And Jesus identified in this woman a willingness to spend everything on him, which he recognized as absolutely beautiful and stunning. Just like the bridegroom in the Song of Solomon, he looked at this woman who was a part of his church and he saw beauty. Not a beauty of the outward appearance, but a beauty of the heart, a beauty of love pouring herself out for Jesus. And that's the way it always is. Jesus always calls us to costly acts of obedience. Because costly acts of obedience show love. When it's easy to obey God, right? It only shows a little bit of love if you do it. When it's advantageous to you to do what God says, it just shows a little bit of love maybe. And maybe it doesn't show love at all. Maybe it just shows convenience. When it's hard, when it hurts, when it costs, when every last drop is used, that shows love. That's the reason why when you read your Bible, you you read some things that's like, man, God's telling me to do this, but woo, that's hard. I don't know if I can swing that. I don't know if I can do it. And you know what? That's the way you're supposed to feel. Because what you need is a deeper motivation in your heart to do those kinds of acts of obedience, which is the only motivation can possibly be the love 
that God is willing through his Holy Spirit to pour into you. It was beautiful, Jesus says. I wonder about us. What costly acts of obedience does Jesus call us to? What is he calling us to do even today that's costly that maybe we've been putting off and avoiding? Maybe our motivations aren't right. Maybe our expenditures are all out of whack, which shows our values are all out of whack. Let's think about it. Now, secondly, this was beautiful to Jesus, but it was not beautiful to everybody. In fact, it was downright ugly to some of the people who were sitting at the table. Uh, You can look at verses 4 and 5 and see their reaction. It says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for a year's wages and given to the poor. And they scolded her. It's it's very picturesque. Uh, The word there uh, for they said to themselves indignantly is, is literally the word snorted. They snorted to themselves <clears throat> like a pig. It's, it's used to describe how pigs snort. <clears throat> the word at the end, to scold her, is the word to trample. They trampled on this woman and her offering like a bull. They were acting like animals. That's how angry they were. They were snorting and trampling on the woman because they thought that what she did was an absolute waste. Now think about this. Everybody recognizes that expenditures are a window into what we really value. But we do not always agree with the way that other people spend because we don't always share their values. And when we don't, we, we do this. Think about it. Uh, as a pastor, I, I'm often there with people as they walk through the process of engagement and marriage. And this is, this is where you see it all the time. Because there are some couples that are like all in for like big expenditures. that They, they just really value the whole engagement wedding process as a whole. And so they, they want the big rock. The three months wages kind of diamond ring. I mean the big one. And they want the big blowout wedding where they ever, you know, you spend tens of thousands of dollars. But then you have other couples, and this is probably more than the, the other category, who really don't care about that. Just give me any kind of ring, right? I'm, I'm good with it. Just have a few people, intimate little ceremony. Don't spend too much money because that's not what's important to me. Something else is more important to me, right? Now, the two parties never react to one another gracefully, at least behind closed doors. You've been, you've been there, okay? You, you've looked at the woman's ring and said, oh, honey, what a wonderful ring. And then when you left, you snorted. <clears throat> right? <clears throat> Can't believe he would spend that much money. Wow, what a waste. Or what a cheapskate. You've left a wedding thinking, oh, wonder how much that costs. Sheesh, what a waste. This is exactly what's happening at this dinner table, right? They are just looking at this woman's set of values and thinking, what in the world? Except for here, the stakes are so much higher because an engagement ring and a wedding ceremony, relatively trivial compared to this. They use the word waste to describe something that was done to Jesus. That's a significantly bigger deal, right? This is not criticizing someone's diamond ring. This is criticizing an act of worship offered to the living God. 
saying it's too much. You've gone too far. You're too radical. You're too extreme. Uh, how dare you? And, and as we always do, they cover it over in sanctimonious reasoning, right? And so we often do that. How dare he spend so much on that diamond ring? Don't you know how many people in the world don't have food? And every time we say that, we really don't care, truly, in that moment about the other people who don't have food. We're just trying to get a good, respectable reason for why we're criticizing the person for their personal decision. And so that's what they said here. This could have been sold. $45,000 could have been earned, and we could have distributed it to the poor. How sanctimonious. How fake. John, actually, again, John gives so much more detail than Mark about this. And I hate to keep bringing John in. I know we're preaching on Mark, but john has got some good details here. John says it was particularly Judas Iscariot who thought this. And he said this actually out loud. This is why they knew it. And it said that Judas did not care for the poor... But he said this because he was a thief. That's literally what it says. And, you know, lo and behold, this thief had been elected into the office of treasurer. Literally, he was the treasurer of the disciple group. He kept the money bag and kept the accounts. And all throughout the time that he was following Jesus, he was siphoning off money for himself secretly. And so he doesn't care about the poor. He's saying this because he would have rather she come and brought it to him. So that he could have taken this very expensive perfume, sold it, taken a little for him and a little for the poor and a little, you know. He, you could have invested it with me and I would have seen to its appropriation. Right? But no, he covers it in sanctimony. Here's the lesson. Everyone in this room has values. Every one of us make expenses based on our values. But few people are honest about what their values actually are. Few people. Most of us know what we should say. Like We know what we should think. We know what people want to hear. We know what sounds good. And we tell even ourselves those things to cover it over. Oh, I just care for the poor. Or this or that or the other. As an excuse to not see the infinite value of God. See, that's the question. Jesus is not, by the way, saying the poor don't matter. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. He's not saying that. He's not saying you shouldn't give to the poor. Neither is this passage teaching that. But it is saying that the value of God, the claim of God on our lives, exceeds the claim of the poor. Or the rich. Or anybody else. Because he's God. Jesus is the son of God. And so this woman saw a window of opportunity to do something extravagant, to show her love for Jesus, and she did it. She didn't think it was a waste. He didn't think it was a waste. But those who had different values, who didn't see the value of God, they thought it was a waste, even though they may have told themselves a story about how, well, we just really care about the poor. And so let me urge you, To think more honestly. We all need to do this. I've thought about it all week, and it's convicting, I warn you. But think honestly. What do you consider a good use of your time versus a waste of your time? 
What do you really consider a good use of your money versus a waste of your money? What do you consider a good use of your energy versus a waste of your energy? Here's another question that really convicted me. Have you ever been criticized for loving Jesus too much? Has someone ever said, well, don't go that far? That's radical. That's extreme. What are you, a holy roller? Are you a religious fanatic, a freak? Has anyone ever said that to you? Because, you know, if they have, you're in good company. They said it about Mary. And if we haven't, maybe, well, since actions are a window to the heart, maybe we got to ask ourselves, what do we value? Hmm, told you it was convicting. Think about it. Now let's look thirdly at why exactly Jesus found this beautiful. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus gives actual reasons why he thought the woman's act was beautiful. And first of all, before he does that, he, he defends her. If you look there in verse 6, it says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. This, is, this in itself is kind of a little lesson, like a little mini lesson. That when people think we're too extreme for Jesus, or when, when they accuse us of waste because of how much we love the Lord, this God that we can't see, this gospel that we weren't alive to see take place 2,000 years ago, when people cast all kinds of aspersions on us because of that, we can know we have a defender in Jesus, right? He, he stands up for his people. Uh, when we treat, and similarly, when you treat God's people poorly, he takes that personally. It's as if you're treating him poorly. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Stop it. Like when Jesus met Saul of Tarsus on the road and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love that. You see, Saul wasn't, didn't think anyway. He was persecuting Jesus. Jesus was, to him, Jesus was long dead. It didn't matter. He was persecuting the church. And yet, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Because, you see, he's married to his people. He's married to his church. They, we, are, we are part of his body. It's the way he thinks of us. And so when we are mistreated or when we, on the other side, mistreat God's people, Jesus takes it personal and is there to defend. And in his defense, notice, he gives a few reasons why the woman's act is sweet and beautiful in his eyes. And I want you to just look at them and think about them with me for a moment. He says first, verse 7, You always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. What was beautiful about her act? It wasn't that she ignored the poor. You know, Jesus is not saying... Don't worry about ever giving to the poor. In fact, he says the opposite. He says they're always with you, so anytime you want, you can do good for them. Meaning, if you don't do good for them, that shows you don't want to, which is not a good thing, right? We should want to do good for the poor among us, and we should actually do it because we want to. That's Jesus teaching about it. But this woman had insight into what time it was. In fact, I think this woman knew because she picked up what Jesus had been teaching. 
about his death. She knew that Jesus was just about to die. And she knew that she had days, maybe hours with him. The only opportunity she had to do something extravagant to demonstrate her love. And she prioritized that over anything else in her life. She recognized who Jesus was and she went all in on the basis of it. Jesus thought that was beautiful. You see me for who I am. Now think about it. All these men, these, these disciples who've been following Jesus have not been getting it at all. Jesus has been telling them over and over, I'm going to die. And they're every time like, what? And here, like we see often in the Gospels, the women in Jesus' circle are a little bit faster on the uptake. And that sometimes is true in the church today, right? Sometimes. And this woman seems, Mary, seems to be a little faster on the uptake. She's seen what Jesus says, she understands it, and she's acting. Second reason he finds it beautiful. She did what she could, verse 8. She not only saw the time and saw who I am and responded, she, she did what she could. She, she looked at her life, evaluated what her capabilities were, and she went as high as she could go. It's a similar phrase used about the widow woman from a few weeks ago where it says she gave all that she had. Now, for the widow woman, how much was that? I called it a dollar twenty-five. That's what I called it. And that was that's just kind of a roundabout guess of what two mites or two copper coins might have been. Dollar twenty-five. Mary, when she evaluated what she had, she had a forty-five thousand dollar bottle of perfume. That's a lot more. But to Jesus, the, the two gifts were equally amazing. Because both people were doing what they could to express their love for him. He found it beautiful. Another reason. She has anointed my body for burial. Wow. She took that life insurance policy that was intended for one of her family members when they died, and she gave it to me before I died. And God would end up using it to anoint Jesus for his burial because he didn't get to get anointed after he was buried because he died in execution. She took care of his body before his body was killed. God used her work. And because of that, look at what he says, last reason he finds it beautiful, and this is the biggest reason. Verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told as a memorial or in memory of her. Jesus finds it beautiful because he sees it to be inextricably linked with the gospel. He, he can't figure out how her act is ever going to be able to be separated from his act on the cross. This is profound. I want to tell you, this is profound, and, and this is something that shows you Jesus was not overreacting. Neither actually was Judas. They just had very different ideas of who was right. Both of them were acting appropriately. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were given. They were sacrifices of animals. The first sacrifice you brought to God was always your sin offering, your guilt offering. It was a substitution. You put your hand on the head, you confessed your sins, you cut the throat, you offered it up wholly to God. Then came the various other thanksgiving offerings. 
And you were supposed to take them, whether it was an animal, whether it was a bird, whether it was a, some flour or some oil or some even perfume. There's various things you could offer, drinks, wine and stuff. You always put them on top of the sin offering so that as the sin offering was burning, the thanksgiving offering was burning with it. And every time it describes it, it says, God will smell the sweet-smelling savor when you offer the atonement and the thanksgiving offering together. Let me explain. Jesus Christ saw this woman's act as beautiful because he saw in this woman's act the fruit of his act of love. In fact, I think when Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane, he smelled the nard. I don't see how it couldn't be. Just a day and a half, two days before, I mean, you're not going to get that washed off. A whole bottle of $45,000 perfume, it's going to be with you a few days, especially in your hair. When he hung on the cross, did he smell it? Did it remind him of what he was dying for and the purpose for which he died? That not only might my people be atoned for, but they might actually become people who offer a sweet-smelling savor to God. Right? What an amazing thing. I mean, all, all of us know what it's like to finish a job, see it finished, and just celebrate it. Right? I mean, it's such a good feeling to see a job complete. As a pastor in my daily work, I don't, there's not a lot about my work that's like that. Um, it, I, n I never know if my work is done, and it probably never is until heaven. So I got to wait till heaven to see it, which is hard on a person with a little patience. So that's why I like on, on my off days to do things like mowing the yard, right? I like that. I like to vacuum, actually, which is kind of weird, I know, but I like it. I like to iron shirts. Simple things, because those kinds of, of activities, when you do them and you see it, you know it's done. And that feeling, right? That feeling when you see the mown grass. <sighs> yes. It worked. As Jesus was being anointed by Mary at the table, what he smelled was the fruit of his finished work ahead of time. Because he was smelling not just nard from India, he was smelling the substance of this woman's heart poured out in love to God, which is why Jesus died for her, so that she might be able to do that. In other words, the gospel has three parts, and you can't take any one of these parts out and still have the gospel. First part, we can do nothing to save ourselves, not a thing. Second part, Jesus did everything needed to save us. Third part, we are now to give anything to God that he asks. You can't take one of those three out and still have the gospel. The gospel is of a piece. The, the atonement offering and the thanksgiving offering go together. You can't offer them apart. They've got to be on top of the other. This story is going to be told in memorial of her everywhere the gospel is preached. 
You cannot preach the good news of Jesus dying for you without also preaching the good news that you might live for him. We could do nothing. Jesus did everything so that we might give him anything that he asks. Now that's a beautiful thing, don't you agree? That dinner table, by the way, I think it's a beautiful picture of of the church. What the church should be. We got lepers in here. Not talking about physical, but we were lepers and we've been cleansed. Amen? Wow, we got so much to be thankful for. We were dead. Now we're alive. Amen? We were confused like Mary was at the grave and Jesus sorted us out. And the fragrance of our praise as a result of that, God loves the smell. People may come against the church. People may come against Christians. People may think we're absolute idiots. God says, leave them alone. They're doing a beautiful thing to me. Amen.